It is a magnificent structure. One of the most beautiful and costly in the world. Overwhelmed with grief at the death of his beloved and favorite wife, the Indian ruler Shah Jahan resolved to honor her by ordering the construction of a temple that would serve as her tomb and a memorial of his love for her. Taj Mahal was named after her title, which means Pride of the Palace. It took 20,000 workmen to build the white marble structure set strategically in a beautiful garden. The 186 square foot building topped with a dome 70 feet in diameter, which towers 120 feet above the central part of the building. The Taj Mahal is surrounded by reflecting pools which serve only to enhance the tremendous lengths to which men will go to honor the object of his devotion. But breathtaking pools are not the only things that surround the Taj Mahal. Over the years, fascinating legends have taken their place around this monument. But there is one which haunts. And I read it again this week. That legend reflects another extreme into which men may fall. And let me share it with you using another author's poignant words. He writes, the favorite wife of the Mughal emperor, Shah Jahan, died. Devastated, he resolved to honor her by constructing a temple that would serve as her tomb. Her coffin was placed in the center of a large parcel of land, and construction of the temple began around it. No expense would be spared to make her final resting place magnificent. But as the weeks turned into months, the Shah's grief was eclipsed by his passion for the project. He no longer mourned her absence. The construction consumed him. One day, while walking from one side of the construction site to the other, his leg bumped against a wooden box. And the prince brushed the dust off his leg and ordered that the worker throw that box out. The Shah didn't realize that he had ordered the disposal of the coffin, now forgotten, hidden beneath layers of dust and time. The one the temple was intended to honor was forgotten. But the temple was erected anyway. Difficult to believe? Perhaps, but eerie nonetheless. Could someone build a temple and forget why? Could someone construct a palace yet forget the king? Could someone sculpt a tribute and forget the hero? You answer those questions. Answer them this morning in a church. The next time you enter an assembly of worship, regardless of it's here or anywhere else, position yourself where you can see the people. I've often thought of having you come up here, one at a time, and see what it looks like from this perspective. Then you decide. Every church has problems. The church without problems, says George Malone, is a church without people. 
Dry times, relational conflict, leadership inadequacies are all part of the life of every community of believers at any given time. But when the life of the church becomes marked more by gross spiritual neglect than spirit-fired in a participation, ritualized religion than of intimate communion with God and people who are simply going through the motions instead of growing up in their faith, it becomes a crippled and contaminated church. When honor for the temple replaces honor for the one for whom the temple exists, when religion becomes ritual instead of reality, the people involved need a grand dose of something the Bible calls repentance. And that's no joke. Religious deterioration within the church requires a radical renovation within our hearts. Believe it or not, we, the people of God, need that reminder. We need it. Doing church, so to speak, can easily become a routine duty. It can happen to every pastor who begins to focus more on the temple and less on the king. We get tired of the same old, same old and end up resenting the whole Christian thing. It can happen to pastors. It can happen to deacons. It happens to leaders of youth. It can happen to nursery workers. It can happen to greeters. And it happens to teachers of truth. It can happen in small groups. It happens in worship. It can happen with rock or with hymns. It can happen to Russell's. It can happen to Henry's and even to Andrew's or Tim's. <laughs> and when we persist in ignoring the truth that comes down from the spirit above, the souls that erode and the joy that recedes testifies that we've left our first love. Sorry, I couldn't help that. It's the Dr. Seuss thing that's left over from a couple of weeks ago. Is that happening to you? Or has it ever happened to you? Then God has a message, and it's no Dr. Seuss bedtime story. It's the same one he gave to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. When he said, remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at the first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, friends, we are the church. And the church is supposed to be a light. No church in its right mind would want to lose its influence in the community. But when the church shifts its primary focus away from the foundation, its spiritual impact on the community is crippled. Author Hans Kuhn put it this way, if the church wants to be a credible herald, witness, demonstrator, and messenger in the service and the reign of God, then it must constantly repeat the message of Jesus, not primarily to the world, to others, but to itself. Its credibility and no amount of energetic and busy activity can replace that vital factor depends on remaining faithful to the message of Jesus. 
That's a message I believe the church needs to hear. I need to hear. Over and over again. Like Shah Jahan, we can become so enamored with the temple that we lose our focus on the king. About 2,500 years ago, the Lord sent a prophet to the nation of Israel who delivered a very pointed message that pointed out some major holes in their religious practices. And we don't know anything about this man except his name, Malachi, not Malachi. Malachi, which means my messenger. And as the Lord's messenger, he not only called a post-exilic people of Israel on the carpet, but I believe he calls the contemporary church as well on that same carpet. The parallels are astounding. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. Let me read verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, the King James Version uses the word burden instead of oracle. If you've got a KJV, it says burden there. And a burden it was. The prophetic message of Malachi is a heavy, heavy word when you read through the book. And I'd encourage you all to read through the book this week. It's only four chapters. Read it through. More than once, get the drift of what it says. If this book were a song, I believe it would be played in a minor key. No matter how hard you try to sweeten his message, it still leaves a bitter aftertaste because it deals with the poison of spiritual apathy. Malachi was dealing with a people who had left their first love. They didn't lose it, they left it. They had endured over 200 years of captivity under foreign rulers who had finally, finally allowed them to return home. They were economically poor, politically weak, and emotionally sour. Sound familiar? The temple had been rebuilt, but there was no glory attached to it. Religious duties were performed within it without enthusiasm and with little, if any, conviction. The spirit of worship had dissolved into mere formality. And on the outside, they appeared to be worshiping God. But on the inside, most of them could care less about it. To them, Saturday at the synagogue was just another service. The priests had grown tired of offerings and contamination had crept into their system. The leadership became corrupt. The people of God began exhibiting spiritual hypocrisy. They held to a form of godliness, but totally denied its power. They were financially irresponsible in their giving to the Lord. They were personally apathetic to sin. Marital infidelity and moral laxity permeated the day, and people began to question the prophetic promises, which had recently been delivered by Haggai and Zechariah, that messianic deliverance was soon at hand and drawing near. In short, these people got tired of waiting for Jesus. How relevant is that? 
They got tired of waiting for Jesus. They got tired of doing ministry. They became cynical and lethargic concerning their spiritual responsibilities and their relationship with God. They had become a spiritually secularized people marked by practical atheism. You know what practical atheism is? Practical atheism, I would define, is what happens when one intellectually accepts the truth of God and claims to believe them, yet does not live according to them. Enter Malachi. If there was ever a practical and prophetic message for the church, it is found here. Malachi proclaims a weighty mouthful of words to a drifting, distrustful, disbelieving, and disrespectful people. He is a messenger not one of us desires to meet up with. That is unless you enjoy being spiritually confronted. I don't know too many people that like that. Yet his message is so utterly relevant that it reads like the latest issue of Christianity today. It's a message the contemporary church can ill afford to ignore. Through Malachi, God speaks to us. As a matter of fact, of the 55 verses in this book, 47 of them are spoken by God himself out of his own mouth through Malachi in the first person. So I think Jesus' words are very relevant to us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The task of a prophet, wrote Eugene Peterson, is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. Malachi's words serve as a poignant reminder to us of God's intense love for us and our need for a renewed focus on our relationship with him. And so in the next few weeks, I'm going to be preaching through the book of Malachi. Oh, joy. I can see it on your faces. No, it will be, I hope. No, really, in the next few weeks, we're going to go through every verse of this book. And not only that, but we're going to try something out in our small group ministries as well. Chris and Jen Blanche are going to start their own small group. Henry is going to use the sermon notes and leading questions in their small group. Glenn's already doing it in his small group, and we're going to contact a couple of the leaders and pilot this in maybe one or two or three other small groups so that we're all going through the book at the same time. And it's not just going to be a rehash of what you hear on Sunday mornings. No, the idea is to go deeper. Go deeper ask the questions that I'm not going to be able to address on Sunday mornings and find out exactly what the prophet is saying to you and to your group. And so, over those next few weeks, I pray that through the words of this messenger, you and I will be personally challenged in our faith, spiritually convicted by the word, and radically changed by the Spirit of God. What are the focal points with which we should be concerned if we are to avoid spiritual deterioration in our lives and 
on a greater scale in this church or in the church as a whole? Well, I'm just going to do an overview of the book for you this morning, and here they are. Number one, you need to be seized by the power of a great affection, first and foremost. Look at verses one and two. The oracle of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Let's just end there. How have you loved us, they said. God said, I have loved you. Incredible, incredible. First words out of the mouth of the prophet. No other Old Testament book begins with such a powerful statement of truth. No other prophet in all of the Old Testament opens his mouth and declares such an intimate revelation of God's infinite and unfailing compassion for his people. Malachi says, I have loved you, says the Lord. God says it. In fact, the grammar of the Hebrew is such that the words could be literally translated in the present tense. And you can write it in the margin of your Bible here. Instead of, I have loved you, you could translate this grammar in the Hebrew as, I love you. I love you. This is God. Love is the heart of God's covenant relationship with his people. To know personally that God loves you is the most freeing truth you will ever know in your entire life. Someone once advised a man named John Egan, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. Who am I, asked the contemplative Thomas Merton, and he responded, I am the one loved by Christ. Can you say that? Notice the fact that Malachi doesn't say, the Lord told me to tell you that he loves you. He didn't say that. Instead, the statement comes directly from God through the prophet, I love you. When we finally realize that tremendous truth, it ravishes us. We're seized by the power of it. And everything else changes. Nothing ever looks the same through the eyes of God's love for you. Nothing. Mike Iaconelli was the co-founder of Youth Specialties. He spent 43 years of his life in ministry to youth and 20 years as a pastor of a small church in California. Before he died, Mike recounted a time when dejected and demoralized, he went to Canada with his wife on a five-day spiritual retreat. This is what he writes. Quote, It only took being alone for a short period of time for me to discover I wasn't alone. God had been trying to shout over the noisiness of my life, and I couldn't hear him. But in the stillness and solitude, his whispers shouted from my soul, Michael, I am here. I have been calling you, but you haven't been listening. Can you hear me, Michael? I love you. I've always loved you. And I've been waiting for you to hear me say that to you. 
but you have been so busy trying to prove to yourself that you are loved that you have not heard me, unquote. See, that's what was happening to Malachi's audience. And I dare say that's happening to us on a daily basis. Malachi's audience, they weren't listening. They were doing religion. But they weren't being the people of God. The people God loved. Is it happening to you? In your life? God is saying, I love you. But you're doing everything to avoid that convicting truth. Some of you. Everything. Keeping yourself busy, keeping yourself distracted, running away, because you can't bear the thought. Malachi would say to you, be seized by the power of God's great affection. That's the first step to a radically renovated heart. Second, Malachi says, be sensitive to the process of spiritual erosion. Okay, Malachi goes to, through the love thing, and now he's really going to start outlining what's eating them. Be sensitive to the process in your life of spiritual erosion. Let me give you the pathway to this. It begins with doubting God's love. How, in verse 2, have you loved us? The people said. The first step in the process of spiritual erosion is when we begin to doubt God's love. That's what was happening here. The first thing they did was question God's message, I love you. They shot back with, how have you loved us? The fact is that God loved the nation of Israel from even before his existence, according to the scriptures. His choice of that nation was not based on anything that they had done, nor was it based on any special status that it had. It was purely a choice on God's part. It was purely by grace. Yet they questioned it. Like spoiled children, they had so taken his love for granted that they ended up despising it and turning away from it. They were sinning flagrantly and throwing his love right back in his face. And you know, frankly, that sounds a lot like the attitude of today in a large segment of our society. People ask, how have you loved us, God? The world is a sinking ship. My life is in the toilet. There's poverty, there's violence, there's lewdness in the streets. Injustice abounds. The wicked are not punished and the righteous are oppressed. Our leaders are incompetent and sin is out of control. How in the world, God, can you say that you love us? Isn't that what people say? Because people don't see God's love in their relationships with each other. They don't readily see him ministering his love to them. I love what Joyce Baldwin said. She said, the atrophy of human love in the community has undermined confidence in the divine love. 
But the fact is that God does love people. He loves them enough to have allowed his only son, Jesus Christ, to be butchered on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. There's no greater proof of love. The sad part is that many people in the church have forgotten that God loves them. Are you doubting God's love for you? Doubting God's love is the first step in the process of spiritual erosion. But step one leads to step two, which is dishonoring God's name. See, it's a very small transition from doubting God's love to dishonoring his name. Once we have convinced ourselves that God doesn't really love us, then respect for him flies out the door. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name. See, internally, people begin to wonder if it's even worth serving God after all. I mean, if he doesn't really love us, what is the point? You see how that trickles down? God doesn't really love me, then what's the point of serving him? And externally, this attitude plays itself out in mechanical observances, empty rituals, spiritless worship, and crass indifference to the things of God. He has forgotten and despised in his own temple his own place of worship. But again, people get on the defensive. How have we despised your name, they ask. God answers, by offering me second-rate worship. Spiritual erosion, step number three, despising God's worship. Look at verse seven. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that the table of the Lord is to be despised. That's what they say. A third time, they arrogantly shot back with a question. How? How have we done it? In fact, throughout this book, you're going to find that the people argue with God vehemently. God makes a statement. This is the pattern of Malachi. God makes a statement. The people challenge it. God points out the facts, yet the people don't change. Over and over again. And through the prophet Malachi, God rebukes the nation for its sins. And every time he does it, the people respond, how? Prove it. They're like my son who, when he was young, was caught with his hand in the jar of chocolate chips that my, my wife used to save for baking purposes. All his front teeth are brown with chocolate. And my wife says, hey, I told you not to eat those candies. And he says, what candies? That's what you have in this book. Seven times in this book, the people puff up their chests and challenge God's rebuke of sinfulness. As you read through the book, see if you can identify those seven challenges. I call them the seven questions of a spiritually defective people. And that's the way it is in the society as well. He catches us with our hands in the jar of our sinful desires with the evidence all over our faces, and we do the what? Where? Who? When? How? Me? Thing. You know what I mean? We do. Neither the people nor the priests were engaged in true worship. Their hearts simply were not 
in it. They thought of it as duty rather than relationship. Look at verse 13. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? They weren't giving God their best. They certainly weren't giving God themselves. And their hearts needed serious reconditioning and their minds needed renewing. Malachi's message reverberates all the way into the New Testament through the mouth of Paul as he challenges the church as well. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, And so, dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will accept. When you think of what he has done for you, is this too much to ask? Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. Make this statement to you, and you can chew on this one. Our offering to God is an indication of what's in our hearts. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? Not only were they doubting God's love, dishonoring God's name, and despising God's worship, but spiritual erosion had gained momentum, and they were guilty also of the next thing, defecting from God's word. Chapter 2, verse 3. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you'll be taken away with it. Then you'll know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Boy, those are indicting words. And you know, my head's on the chopping block when I read these words. In Malachi's day, we can call it trickle-down faithlessness. As goes the pulpit, so go the people. Defection from truth has become pandemic in the modern church. I'm absolutely amazed at the letters and calls that we get since First Light has gone on the air, people starving for the Word of God. And I'm constantly astounding at the amount of people who are struggling in churches that preach everything but the Word of God. It's amazing. Religious leaders of Malachi's day had departed from the Word of God and were feeding the people spiritual junk food and God nailed them to the wall for it. When God's leaders defect from God's word, the effect permeates the entire household. The leaders were not only defecting from the word, but as a result, God charged them with the next step in the downward spiral of spiritual erosion, 
derailing God's people. Look at verses 8 and 9 here. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Everyone in this church, this church, Fayette Baptist Church, ought to have as a permanent item on your prayer lists that God would keep our elders, our Sunday school teachers, our youth leaders, our Bible study and small group leaders, and your pastors committed to this word of God. That should be one of the top things on your prayer lists. Because when ministry leaders defect from this word, the church gets derailed. And we begin seeing the effects of it in every area of our lives. And there is no greater example than the one God highlights here. People persist in the next thing, denying God's covenant. Denying God's covenant. I'm not going to read it to you, but that's in chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. We're going to get into all these verses later on. But spiritually mixed marriages and marital infidelity characterized this people of Malachi's day. Wrong marriages were taking place and no-fault divorce accentuated the problem. And God minced no words in dealing with this issue head on. He said in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 and 16, I hate it. Read it. I hate it hate it. Now, that's a pretty strong statement coming from the mouth of God, isn't it? See, the midlife crises of the priests created fertile soil for a nation's spiritual crisis. And the same characteristics of spiritual erosion are rocking our church today. The trajectory is absolutely devastating. It begins with doubting God's love, moves to dishonoring God's name, despising his worship, and slowly but surely leads to a defection from his word, which results in the derailing of God's people. Denying God's covenant is then only one step removed from the seventh aspect of spiritual erosion, which is redefining God's will. Redefining God's will. Verse 17 of chapter 2, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Wow. When God says he's tired of something, that's a scary statement. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Again, denial. In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Now, when I get into this text, we'll make some cultural and clear parallels to what he's saying here. But can you see this in our society where people are saying that evil is good in the sight of the Lord and that God actually delights in people that do evil? They've redefined God's will. Why? Well, back it up. Because they denied God's covenant. The people were derailed and they defected from the word. At this point, there comes rapid regression 
When people begin to rationalize their sin and justify their actions because God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it, the end of God's patience and the searing of our conscience is at hand. People then begin to exploit God for their own ends and literally, literally embezzle from the Lord by devouring God's gifts. And that's in chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. At this stage, people begin to think of their time, their money, their possessions, and their talents as something they deserve. It's the whole entitlement deal. I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. We begin to believe that what is ours is ours, and we forget that, quote, every good and perfect thing bestowed, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, as James 1.17 says. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. See, we don't give of ourselves or our time or our finances with a cheerful heart like God wants us to when you get to this stage. Instead, people selfishly devour blessings and then God eventually cuts them off. Our response or people's response, instead of repentance, they persist in sin and they find themselves in the next stage, which is deploring God's service. Chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We don't even want to think at this stage, if you're at this stage, if I'm at this stage, this is how it works. We don't even want to think about going to another service, singing another song, giving another offering, or hearing another sermon. That's the stage. And now if that's you, hang on, because here is one of the indications that you may be heading into the final stage of spiritual erosion, which is deserving God's discipline. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I'm telling you, Malachi didn't mess around when God spoke through him here. I should say God didn't mess around. The fact is, is that if we're in this place, God will discipline you. You know why? Go back to verse 2. I love you, God says. He disciplines us because he loves us. In Malachi's day, God promised that when the Messiah came, it wasn't going to be a pretty picture for those who were running down the road of spiritual erosion. Justice would indeed be served all right, but unless they repented, it would be served on them. And so Malachi says, be seized by the power of a great affection, God's great affection, 
be sensitive to the process of spiritual erosion. And if we want to counteract spiritual deterioration in our lives, we must be thirdly open to the principle of biblical correction. That's in chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. And those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11 says this, No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And I'll tell you, that's a much needed message today, friends, but not a very welcome one. It's not a welcome one. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to hear it. It doesn't feel good to preach it. But I think we're beyond the place of gentle persuasion, aren't you? Well beyond. Well beyond. These recent words of Chuck Colson prompted my decision to embark on this series, believe it or not. In a recent blog that I read, he said this, quote, I want to put it in the plainest terms I know how. This nation cannot be saved unless the church is first revived. Renewing the church is the key to saving America. We will be unable to continue to be a force for good in the world if we are bankrupt. The fact is we are bankrupt today. Neck deep in debt. And our people have become self-indulgent. And it starts, he says, with us, the church. For if the church continues to embrace the ways of the world, I don't see how America can maintain its place in the world, much less survive in it. Unquote. See, the job of a prophet is not to smooth things over. It's to make things right. Those are prophetic words, I believe. We, the church of Jesus Christ, ought to be doing some soul searching. Will we find ourselves hurling down this road of spiritual erosion and continue to step on the gas? Or will we take the necessary steps to avoid the inevitable wreckage how do you feel about the relationship that you have with God right now? Do you feel that he's departed from you? Or drawn away from you? Many people feel that that's the way God deals with us when we sin. That God moves away. He leaves us alone. He distances himself from us. But nothing could be further from the truth. God does not withdraw his love or his presence from us if we are his children by faith. If we Christ followers, we have Jesus' promise that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. If we feel that God is distant from us, it's because we've moved out of fellowship with him. It's like the elderly couple who were driving along the road and were passed by young newlyweds. You've heard this story, haven't you? 
The girl was snuggled up next to her husband in the middle of the front seat, almost on his lap. And the elderly woman looked longingly at her husband from the passenger side of the car and remarked, Oh, George, remember when we were like that? Whatever happened to that young, energetic, enthusiastic relationship that we had? And glancing over from behind the steering wheel, George replied, I don't know about you, Martha, but I haven't moved. <laughs> See, that's what happens in our spiritual life. When the relationship we once had with Christ seems to lack enthusiasm and passion and closeness, we think Christ has distanced himself from us when in reality he hasn't budged. He's still in the driver's seat. God never changes in his covenant relationship with his people. He never refuses us. He refines us. He loves us too much to allow us to continue in a state that will absolutely destroy us. Like James McDonald always says, and I love this statement, I repeat it so often, when God says, don't, what he really means is don't hurt yourself. When we accept God's biblical correction, we are in essence coming back to the place from where we have moved. It's called repentance. It's, it's a coming back to God, turning away from sin, moving toward God. We push away from our stubborn sinfulness and draw nearer to him. We remember and we return in humble obedience to our first love. So in his final charge, Malachi leaves his audience and us with this word of hope. He says, hold on to the promise of eventual restoration. And that's in chapter 4. I'll just read verse 2 to you right now. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Are you seized by the power of God's love? Do you know He loves you? Does it affect the way you live? Are you sensitive to power, to the power of spiritual erosion in your life and in the church? And to the process of it, do you know the signs? If you're on that track, are you open to the principle of biblical correction by God? Don't you long to be walking with him again? If so, I've got news for you. It's good news. God will restore you. He will restore us. And it will be better than you ever dreamed it could be. Think back for a moment to the beginning of this message to the Taj Mahal. Remember the questions that the author asked at the beginning? Could someone build a temple and forget why? Could someone construct a palace yet forget the king? Could someone sculpt a tribute and forget the hero. You answer those questions. Answer them in a church. The next time you enter an assembly of worship, position yourself where you can see the people, and then you decide. 
You can tell the ones who remember the slain one. They're wide-eyed and expectant. They're children watching the unwrapping of a gift. They're servants standing still as a king passes by. You don't doze in the presence of royalty. And you don't yawn while receiving a gift, especially when the giver is the king himself. You can also tell the ones who see only the temple. Their eyes wander, their feet shuffle, their hands doodle, their mouths open, not to sing, but to yawn. For no matter how hard they try to stay amazed, their eyes start to glaze over. All temples, even the Taj Mahal, lose their luster after a while. The temple gazers don't mean to be bored. They love the church. They can cite its programs and praise its pastors. They don't mean to grow stale. They put on hats and hose and coats and hot ties and come every week, but still something's missing. The one they once planned to honor hasn't been seen in a while. But those who have seen him can't seem to forget him. They find him, often in spite of the temple rather than because of it. They brush the dust away and stand ever impressed before his tomb, his empty tomb. The temple builders and the savior seekers, you'll find them both in the same church, in the same chairs, at times even in the same suit. One sees the structure and says, what a great church. The other sees the savior and says, what a great Christ. Which do you see? Let's pray. God, help us see the Savior and proclaim in no uncertain terms what a great and marvelous and tremendous Savior we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgive us, our Father, for allowing ourselves to slide down the road of familiarity if we're on that road. Help us to identify at what stage we're at if we're on that road to spiritual erosion and to put on the brakes and turn around and go in the other direction. And may your name be praised in our lives. May we walk hard after you. And may people see us as followers of Christ, not simply attenders of churches, but followers of Christ. For I prayed in his name and for his sake, because he is worthy of all honor and praise. Amen.